0: Christians for quite a number of years uh, can be somewhat disparaging about some of the modern songs that we sing in church. Uh, The musician, musical director just nodded his head in agreement. Uh, Not just the music which we may not like, uh, but also the lyrics which we may not think are particularly good. More important, very good theology. I have to be honest that what we forget, and I include myself here, what we forget is that this is not a new phenomenon. And the reason we forget is that those of my generation have forgotten all the bad songs that we used to sing that didn't survive the test of time, which is one of the main criteria for evaluating whether a song is good or not. Uh, there is one song I sang when I was younger, which hasn't survived, but which fortunately, at least for the purpose of this sermon illustration, I've remembered. It was entitled, Jesus and Me, and I apologise for any of my contemporaries for whom this was a favourite song. I will not inflict the tune in my voice on you, but only the words of the first verse and chorus as I recall it. It went something like this, and I can't really believe it was this bad, but anyway, here we go it went something like this I travelled alone along life's weary road my burden was heavy dark was my load I looked for a friend not knowing that he had all of the time been looking for me chorus now it's just Jesus and me for each tomorrow for every heartache and every sorrow I know that I can depend upon my newfound friend and so to the end it's very poetic it's Jesus and me well It's not totally bad, because there's actually a, a good strong truth in it, which is that being a Christian means a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it is far more than that. For being a Christian also means an interpersonal relationship with all other Christians. When I turn from my sin, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian you'll have done that, if you haven't you need to do that, when you do that you discover it's not just Jesus and me it's also for good or ill Jesus and me and you and you and you and you and you and all sorts of other people down the centuries across the world who each have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and an interpersonal relationship with one another John Wesley put it this way, God knows nothing of solitary Christians. God knows nothing of solitary Christians. Now, the word which the Bible uses for people in relationship with each other through their relationship with Jesus Christ is the word church. The church is God's plan. And the word church is used to describe All Christians everywhere, what is commonly called the universal church, as well as churches in miniature, which is called the local church. So this letter we've been studying together, 1 Corinthians, notice how it actually begins. Paul writes this letter, this is what he says. Notice the words. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Do you see the two things there? To the church of God in Corinth, and all Christians everywhere who call on the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this word church, found about 80 times in the New Testament, It's a Greek word, which are all the words in the New Testament because it's originally written in Greek. And the word in Greek is is the word ekklesia, from which we get the word ecclesiastical, to do with churches. The word is made up of two parts in Greek, and it literally means called out. Called out. Christians are called out people. And that tells us two things. The first is that the church is made up of those whom God has called to belong to his people, rather than those who volunteer to join or who somehow qualified for inclusion by some merit or achievement. They're called by God. And the second is that these people are called out, out of their old way of life into a new way of life. They are called, he said in those verses at the beginning of this letter, they are called to be holy. Holy simply means different like God. And they are different not only in their personal lives and behaviour, Christians, but they are also different in how they relate to one another, what has been called God's new society, the church. Now, the problem in the church in Corinth, and the Christians there, is a problem that has plagued the church down through the ages. is that they forgot that this was their calling and was their focus that God has called them out to be different, his different holy people. And this letter of of 1 Corinthians, if you've been with us over this past year, the plan is, God willing, if Christ doesn't return by the end of the year, we should finish 1 Corinthians. And if you want to hear it, you can get the tapes. And uh, you can listen on the internet now as well, if you want to catch up on all the previous series. But we've called this series Keeping First Things First. Because that's what the Christians in Corinth needed to do, to keep first things first. And in chapters 12 to 14, this is kind of backtracking a little if you've been here before, just, well don't fall asleep, but just switch off slightly at the moment. In chapters 12 to 14 of this letter, Paul specifically is addressing this issue of what does it really mean to be a church and for the first time in his writings his written record of what Paul actually wrote and said, because 1 Corinthians comes first, chronologically for the first time he uses this picture of a body with many parts, one body, many parts And that's what I want us to do this evening, to look at what he says and how he uses this picture. So it will help to turn in the Bible, because we always turn to what the Bible says rather than what I say. I'm simply trying to explain it and apply it. So if you've got a Bible, turn to page 1153. If you've already got it open, that's great. If you want to make some notes, fine. If you just prefer to listen, that's fine as well. Page 1153, we're going to look at this together. Now, this picture of the body to describe a group of people, is not original to Paul. It's very common in the ancient world. Uh, There's a very famous story, uh, an allegory told, about a particular Greek society where the plebs, you know what the plebs are, the plebeians, the the lower classes, were going to rebel against the patricians, those who ran the society, because they thought they were all sponges. And so a leading philosopher got up and told a parable about a body. And he said this body got fed up of feeding the stomach. Because they said all the stomach it just sits there and takes in. It never does any good. So they stopped feeding it. And the whole body suffered. Well, the point is obvious, isn't it? What we need to do when we look at what Paul says here is how he actually applies this particular point that he's trying to make about the body. Now, there are th- it's very simple, this really. There are just two related themes here, right? the first theme is that of unity one body the second theme is that of diversity many parts or many members and there's a play on words between body members and members of a church so I want us to look this evening at what is taught here Because it's not only important to the church in Corinth, all those years ago, nearly 2,000 years ago, it's very important to Christians in Edinburgh and Christians at any place, at any time. Can I say this, if you remember nothing else, if you are a Christian, you should be part of a body. If you remember nothing else about this sermon, remember this, and I simply ask you this, you may be a visitor and you belong to another church, that's fine, God knows nothing of solitary Christians. You need to be part of a body. That's how God planned it. For your good, for his good, and for the good of other Christians as well. So, let's look at these two themes together. First of all, unity, one body, verses 12 and 13 is where he focuses on this, although he keeps switching between the themes in these verses. Now, just a reminder, if you were here last time in the last study, we saw in chapter 12, verses 1 to 11 that Paul is answering questions that the Christians in Corinth they'd written a letter to him about all sorts of issues and one of the issues they wanted to know about was spiritual gifts and what they were and how they functioned and Paul reminds them that the Spirit the Holy Spirit has given different spiritual gifts to different Christians for the common good not those that they deserve, these gifts are again a Greek word They're martyr, two parts again, charis is God's grace, what we don't deserve, martyr is gift they're gifts of God's grace so, look at verse 11 as we come almost to the section now he says, all these are the work of the one and the same spirit and he gives them to each one, just as he determines, now you imagine the Corinthians getting this and saying, great I've got a gift of prophecy, oh I speak in tongues. What my gift is, administration. I'm an encourager, whatever it is. Now, the great danger is that it just then splits off into individualism. So he says, look, the only environment in which you can use these gifts is the place that God has designed for them to be used. If you are a gifted swimmer, you cannot use your gift on a football field. Well, normally, unless it's flooded, all right? And if you are a gifted Christian and every Christian is a gifted Christian, because God has given gifts to every Christian, if you are a gifted Christian, the only place you can use your gift, the place where God has designed it to be used, is in a church. However, a church is not like a team where each member plays his or her part, not just anyway, let alone a theatre where each actor plays a role or does a turn. No, he says it's far more than that. A church is like a body where each person in the church is like a body part or member inextricably and vitally linked with all the other body parts to make one unit. So if I am a Christian, I can no more function apart from the church than could my hand if it was amputated from my body. An amputated hand may look and be perfect. It's got the skin, the the muscle, the sinew, the veins. But it has no context in which to function apart from being joined to the body. It doesn't belong anywhere else. But when joined to the body, it is animated and along with all the other parts fulfills its function which makes up a whole body. So Paul writes in verse 12, look what he says, the body is a unit though it is made up of many parts and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Now just stop there a minute because he's just written something you wouldn't expect. Did you notice it? Look at it again. You'd expect him to say, the body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with the body of Christ or so it is with the church. But actually he literally says, so it is, with the Christ. What he's saying is something absolutely remarkable. He's saying that the church is Christ on earth today. Seen all over the world, but seen in miniature form in each local congregation. The church is Christ on earth. Someone has written this. In order to accomplish his work on earth, Jesus had a body made of flesh and blood. In order to accomplish his work today... Jesus has a body consisting of living human beings. Now, these living human beings do not just possess physical life, but spiritual life. Life that was received when they responded to God's call. You see, when you become a Christian, God doesn't just forgive you and say, because of what Jesus did on the cross, your sins are wiped out. That's a wonderful thing. He doesn't just say, and when you die, you'll go to heaven and be with me forever. No, he says, I'm going to make you a member of my family and I'm going to put my, my own life within you to animate you, to make you what you could never be by your own efforts. You see, maybe you're not a Christian this evening. You think, I'd love to be a Christian. I admire my friends who are Christians. But look, take it from me. There's no way I could live a Christian life. Absolutely, you're right. But God has made it possible by putting his Spirit into you to animate you and to help you become like Jesus. So look what he says in verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body whether Jews or Greeks slave or free we were all given one spirit to drink. Now the word baptism there is a word of initiation it's something that happens at the beginning. He's not primarily here talking about baptism in water. We had a baptismal service the other week last week wasn't it? Time goes quickly when you're having fun. And this pool down here was open and three people got baptised he's not primarily talking about that he's talking about being baptised by or more accurately if you look at the footnote in the NIV more accurately it should be baptised in or with the spirit we are given life in the spirit this expression baptism in the spirit is a very controversial phrase so let me spend a little bit of time just talking about it It's it's found about half a dozen times in the New Testament. It's always found in the context, other than these verses here, it's always found in the context of the comparison between the baptism of John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus, and baptised in water, and his promise that the one coming after him, the Messiah, would baptise with the Spirit. So, we read, for example, in Matthew's Gospel that when the people asked John the Baptist who he was, and some of them speculated and said, could this be the promised Messiah, the Christ? He said, no, 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 you've got this wrong. He said, there's just no comparison. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptise you in, with, by the Holy Spirit. And that promise was fulfilled. Here's John promising that one will come, the Messiah, and when he comes, he will baptise in the Spirit. That promise was fulfilled when Jesus died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and from there sent the Holy Spirit, who was poured out on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. They were baptised in the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. And so the Apostle Peter at the end of that great day on the day of Pentecost, you see, those people received the Spirit when they were waiting in an upper room. So you ask yourself, well, how do Christians after that receive the Spirit? How do you get baptized in the Spirit? Do we all have to go to an upper room and wait or visit Jerusalem or, or hang around waiting for this? The answer is no, because on the day of Pentecost... The Apostle Peter preached this incredible sermon, which you can read in Acts chapter two. And at the end of it, the people were absolutely mortified to learn that they had crucified the Messiah, and they were cut to the heart. And they said, what, what, "What should we do?" And Peter said, "Here's the promise on offer." Acts two thirty-eight: "Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the forgiveness bit they talked about. And you will receive what?" the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Notice again, God calls people, they respond in repentance and faith, God forgives them, and they're filled with his Holy Spirit. The promise that John the Baptist made is fulfilled. And the promise, therefore, is for all whom God calls into his ecclesia, his called out ones. The promise is given to all Christians. And he says here in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, God makes no distinctions about the kind of people who can receive the Spirit. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Race and religion no longer count. It doesn't matter whether you're slave or free. Class and status no longer count. In the church of Jesus Christ, We are, as Paul puts it in another letter to the Christians in the Roman province of Galatia, chapter 3, verse 28, he says, we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is God's new society, and it's radically different from anything the world has ever seen. Anything that the Roman Empire or Greek society had ever seen was this group of people who came together. And you read contemporary historians, non-biblical sources, and they say this remarkable thing. You see a master and a slave sitting together, praying together, kneeling together, receiving bread and wine together, all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the immediate context in Corinth, if you've been with us in this series, is obvious. Because the church in Corinth was wracked by factionalism. It broke up into different cliques. We've seen that in the way they abused the Lord's table in chapter 11. And they needed to be reminded that God had treated all of them equally in receiving the Holy Spirit in which they all shared. That's what he says. For we were all, verse 13, baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. And we too need to be reminded of this. Not least because tragically, amazingly, ironically, this phrase, the baptism in the spirit, is the one phrase that has been used over the last 40 years, at least in the church in the West, to divide Christians between haves and have-nots, between first and second class Christians, between those who have been baptised in the Spirit and those who haven't. And the use of the expression here and throughout the New Testament reminds us whatever we use, we use what terms that the Bible uses. When the Bible talks about baptism in the Spirit, it refers to all Christians and initiator experience which is then followed by baptism in water which marks what's already happened. However, before you sit there nodding and saying, oh yes, well he's confirmed my prejudice or whatever it might be, or or you're sitting there enraged and saying, he doesn't know about my experience that I had after I became a Christian. He is not, I'm not talking about that. What he's saying here is that all of us, the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. It's a very strong word. The word drink speaks of personal experience. It means of satisfaction. It means saturated in the spirit, and I simply ask you, as I ask myself about you and about this church and whatever church you belong to, is that a good exper- Is that a good description of your present experience? Are you filled with the spirit? Are you a person who, who, who has been richly blessed by God? You, could you say, my experience, I've been saturated with the spirit, and I simply say to you, we all need subsequent experiences. People say to me, have you had the second blessing? I say, I hope so. I'm on about the 152nd or whatever it might be. We need constantly to go on being filled with the Spirit. Because only in this way can we be what we're meant to be, which is the body of Christ on earth. What's Jesus like? Look at Charlotte Chapel. That's a good illustration of what Jesus is like. Quite makes you think, doesn't it? that local church down the road. You will know what Jesus is like today? You can find the record in the Bible, but you can also see a visible picture of it. His body is seen in that church. Raises everything to a totally different level, doesn't it? Remember in Ezekiel's famous vision, in Ezekiel 37, that picture of the valley of dry bones and all the bones came together like a mighty army. And then God's Spirit breathed into it, into this mighty army, and they were animated by the wind of the Spirit. The words. Greek and Hebrew the same word, the wind that blows, that God's Spirit blew into them and transformed and changed them. And that's what we need today. And so do we as members of the body of Christ. Having focused on the unity of the body, Paul now uses this as the basis for the main point he really wants to make. That unity, he says, is expressed in diversity, many parts. You'll see that in verses 14 to 26. The Christians in Corinth were focusing on certain spiritual gifts over the rest, especially speaking in tongues. But Paul reminds them that unity does not mean uniformity, that we're all the same. Unity is seen in diversity. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Look what he says in verse 14. And this is obvious in respect of the body. And Paul highlights this humorously by imagining the different parts of the body speaking and saying certain things, none of which are correct. So first of all he says, Many parts means nobody can say, I don't belong. Look at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Uh, the humour is extended to the two body parts that he uses There's a play on words. The word for foot in Greek is pus, and the word for ear is oos. And he says, if the pus should say, and the oos should say, you not kind of get it in English. It's impossible to translate, of course. Now, some people infer from this and try and draw out more of this. They say, ah, well, what he's trying to say is that the foot that's down in the earth and getting messed up and dirty all the time is envious of the hand that's up there and is more dexterous. And likewise, uh, with the ear and the eye. A great Christian preacher, one of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, uh, pointed out, he said that we envy those who are similar to us, you know, foot... And hand rather than those who are radically different from us. That's an interesting point, but it's not really the point that Paul is making here. Rather, his point is that every body part is essential to the makeup and complete functioning of a body. And he says, look, supposing the whole body was just one giant eye. It wouldn't be a body, it would be a monstrosity. Many parts means. No one can say, I don't belong, because every part is essential for the composition, for the description, the representation, I couldn't find the right word really, for the makeup of the body, so that you know it's actually a body, because you've got all those parts linked together. And then in verses 21 to 26, we have another false statement made by the body parts. Not just those who feel inferior and say, I don't belong, but at the other end of the spectrum, there are those who feel superior. And they say to the other body parts, I don't need you. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, here the choice of body parts is surely significant. The eye and the head look down on the hand and the feet respectively. And in the church in Corinth, there were those in the church who looked down on other people and said, ah, they're just a rebel, we don't really need them, they're just actually a bit of an embarrassment to our church, those kind of people. Um... And we saw this around the Lord's table. They had their own meals and they separated off from other people. But as we already saw, this kind of distinction is totally out of place in God's new society. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. However, not only did people look down on others because of their social status or wealth, they also looked down on those who didn't have what they thought were the glamorous spiritual gifts, especially the supernatural gifts. But Paul points out that every member of the body and of the church is needed for the health of the body. And he says those, those parts that are weaker are actually more indispensable and those parts that are less honourable are treated with special honour by being clothed. And in all of this he says God has got this perfect balance. God has made his church in a beautiful way. There's a lovely expression in verse 24 It says God has combined the members of the body. The word "combined" there is a word in Greek that's used to of colouring, of mixing colours and blending colours so that you get exactly the right colour, mixture and picture. See, God has painted his church, not Battleship Grey, or even Magnolia, as we've got in the lounge, I'm told now it's back in, or it's ivory something, anyway, whatever it is. God's church is multicoloured, and God blends all these people together from different backgrounds and different personalities. Listen, believe me, I know as a pastor, I cannot think of anywhere other than a church where the kind of people who meet together in a part of Charlotte Chapel would ever meet in any other circumstances other than because they belong to Jesus Christ. And that's a great challenge, isn't it? That people from all backgrounds, God brings them in. It doesn't matter whether you're smart, welcome to students, but you don't have to be a student. Maybe you left school when you were 15. I don't know. does it matter. Maybe you're very wealthy. That's great. You know, we can do with the money. That's fine. Uh, maybe you've not got any money. Well, that's okay as well. We'll do what we can to help you. Maybe from a difficult social background. It doesn't matter. God is blending people together so that the world looks on and says, That's what the body of Jesus is like. Now, where this doesn't happen, where people look down on one another, Paul says, When this happens, there's division. That's what he says in verse. 24, so that there should be no division in the body. The word in Greek is schisma, which when we get schism, separation. People will then say, oh, the church is just like any other social body, you know, rich and poor, haves and have-nots. No, he says, God has blended it all together. A proper functioning church is one where the members care for each other, suffering together when one suffers rejoicing when one rejoices or is honoured, we share together mutually within the body of Christ. And I tell you, it is a very wonderful thing. It's a painful thing as well. I know as the pastor in this church, because I know probably more than most people do about what's happening in the church, and I get a phone call from somebody who's desperately ill, someone who's died, someone who's struggling in a relationship. I get all the good bits as well when they ring me up and say, Pastor, can we come and see you? We've got engaged. You know, oh, we've got some wonderful news, what God has done in our lives. There's that mutual sharing together, belonging to the body of Christ, that we mutually share together. And I tell you, when it works well, it's a wonderful thing. When it doesn't, it's a, it's a disgrace to the name of Christ. Because people fail to see, this is the attraction of the body of Christ, that people say, that's what a church is like. I want to belong. I like to be part of that. It's a great challenge to us as Christians, Many parts means no one can say I don't need you because every part is essential for the health of the body. So if we are Christians, we are or should be inextricably linked together with other members of the body, part of a local church. No one can say I don't belong. No one can say I don't need you. We we belong together. We need each other. Now our time is going. Let's just move on quickly towards the end of the chapter. The unity of the body then requires diversity. Every part is essential, indispensable. So look at his conclusion in verse 27. He says, Now you are the body of Christ, each one of you is part of it. And then he proceeds to describe God's church appointments. He says the members of the body have different gifts, different functions, and each member of a church has been given these gifts by God. They're not chosen, God has appointed them. There is persons and gifts. Now, we don't have time to look in detail at all the gifts here. Uh, He lists actually three gifts in order, first, second, third, apostles, prophets, teachers, and then five gifts, although the NIV translation has turned them into people uh, instead of actual gifts. And once again, we see that this this is not a comprehensive list of gifts. It's different from the other list he gave us at the beginning of the chapter, let alone in other parts. It's a sample list of what God is doing within his church, the rich variety of his church. We have apostles, those sent by Christ to found the church. The twelve, plus Paul and Barnabas and other ones, at some people, most people believe that that was the foundational apostles, but that modern missionaries, for example, are like apostles. There are prophets, those who speak out God's word in a particular situation. Uh, There are teachers, those who teach God's Word, very important in days when there was no printing and and people couldn't pick up Bibles or papyri and read them. Uh, We looked at miracles and healing last time. Uh, The next two gifts, nobody's even quite sure what they really mean, which again says to me that it's not important what the gift is, but what the point that Paul is making. The word helps refers to somebody who takes a burden on himself from somebody else. The word administration is the word of someone it was used in those days as someone who steers a boat in the right direction. It's used in modern Greek of an airline pilot. It's the person who knows where they're going and you need those kind of people in church to know where we're going. And speaking in tongues is given last. Either because the Corinthians put it first and Paul is trying to make a point or because it's going to be the issue he focuses on and we'll be looking at it, God willing, in a couple of weeks when we come to chapter 14. So you'll have to come back and find out what speaking in tongues is all about. But his teaching point is this. Nobody, no one, has one gift that everybody possesses, verses 29 and 30. And this is absolutely clear at the end of it, because he asks all these questions, and in the language in which he wrote in Greek, it's absolutely clear that each question expects the answer, no way. So, he says, are all apostles? No, of course not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? That's another gift here that we've not even found about yet. No, of course he says not. Now this again has obvious application to our churches today. Whatever of your spiritual gifts, and which of them are available today, none of them will be the possession of every Christian. Again, it's It's just amazing, isn't it, that people have made the gift of tongues, some churches have made the gift of tongues something that all people should have as a sign that they've received the Holy Spirit. You need to be a theological gymnast of the older Corbett variety to get around what it actually clearly says here. God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. These church appointments are God's church appointments. And this should be an encouragement to each one of us. If you are a Christian, God has given you a gift or gifts. You didn't choose them. So don't gripe about the fact you haven't got this gift or that gift. It's what God has chosen for you. And his plan is that we should use them for the common good of the whole body. And I simply want to ask you this evening, are you doing that or have you opted out? You see, there are a lot of unhealthy churches around sadly a lot of broken relationships in churches, a lot of hurt people. And I tell you I understand it because I listen to people quite regularly talking like this and I've experienced it myself in some measure. The great danger is you then say, right, never mind, I'm just going to opt out. And you either stop going to church altogether or you sit in church and say, I'm going to sit there but I'm not going to do anything. Don't become me to do anything. Don't ask me to do anything. I just want to be there. And I'll do it on my terms. I simply say to you, I understand where you're coming from, but you can't do it. If you're a student, come up to university here, get plugged into a local church. If this is the local church, great, you're very welcome. If not, find another church. There's lots of good churches that support students. And don't support students. and with the smaller churches have no students. You'll be a real special person then, instead of with 200 people in Charlotte Chapel. But, uh, that's not to discourage you. We want to encourage you and try and help you as best we can. But you need to be involved. Discover what you just are. Start to put them into practice. Try them out then he finishes finally and I've, I've finished here I've gone on too long but eagerly desire the greater gifts now this is very intriguing why does he say this he's already said God gives the gifts he's already said there are no gifts better than any other so why is he saying now eagerly desire the greater gifts the answer is no one's absolutely sure but if you look at the footnotes some people say well he's actually what he's actually saying here uh, is that he's saying literally you are eagerly desiring these greater gifts but I'm going to show you a better way the way of love a good solution except when you get to chapter 14 he says the same thing in even more emphatic terms follow the way of love verse 1 of 14 and eagerly desire spiritual gifts especially the gift of prophecy what is he saying what well, is it's saying there are certain gifts that are greater because they're of greater benefit probably to the body of Christ and prophecy is one because it's a clear proclamation of God's word and like tongues which the Corinthians focused on that unless you understood it, it was a waste of time for everybody else who was there particularly non-Christians who were present so perhaps the greater gifts are those which most benefit others in the body of Christ in the local church yes God gives them but we can seek them and surely if our motives are right Lord give your gifts to me so that I can share them with other people and surely as Jesus himself has said how many how much more human fathers give you what you ask for how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him and so let's use the gift or gifts God has given us in the place where he has intended them to be used the local church and as we'll see God willing next week with our visiting preacher in Chapter 13, it 's not just the gift that's important, it's how we use it and unless there's love in operation, then the greatest gifts in the world are a complete waste of time let 's sing a.